Hello, this is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm not at Vox Media today. I'm at WNYC, about a mile north, if you're following the geography. Mm. I'm here with the man described as podcasting royalty by the New York Times, Chad Abumra. Did I get the name correct? Yes. Yes. Yes? You don't sound convinced. No. Say it one more time. Do it one more time. Jad. Yeah, that part. Abumrad. Abumrad. Yeah. Good. You're a, but you're, you were 80%. I'll give right, you 80. I felt reasonably confident. I'll give you a B plus. Um, in addition, I have an awesome name. You are the co-host of Radiolab. You are the pre- executive producer of a new show. Well, it's second season. Yes. Of the new show called More Perfect. Indeed. Certified Genius by the MacArthur Foundation. So-called. Brooklyn Dad. What else? What are the other honorifics? Uh, just a dude. Dude. A guy who likes to, I don't know. Make stuff. Make stuff. Composer. Yeah. Composer. Yeah, I do write some music. So I'm here specifically to talk to you about More Perfect, because that should be launching within days of this, the time you hear this podcast. But I know. Can you hear my nerves singing? You seem They're reasonably calm. right now. Um, but, you, but you are taking precious minutes away from per- finishing that to talk to me. So thank you for your time. No, it's um, a, my pleasure. More Perfect is a series made in, in the style of your Radiolab podcast, which I think many of you will have heard because 1.5 million people. Listen I, to pods at the radio lab? Yeah. What's the I, number? I think, that's, I think that's probably in the zone. I mean, it's the numbers are always, a, as, as you probably know, the numbers are a tricky thing. You know, well, a lot of people. A lot of people. A lot Let's of just people say listen people. to Radio Lab. And More Perfect is kind of a spinoff of that. It is specifically about? Uh, it's specifically about sort of taking the Radio Lab approach and applying it to stories and people that land in front of the Supreme Court. Specifically about the Supreme Court, I, mean, I think more broadly, right? It's about the legal system. Yeah, it's it's about the legal system. I mean, the court itself. I got to be honest. Like, do I actually care who these justices are at the end of the day and what they're? I mean, yeah, I care a little bit, but really, what I care about is that this is the place where like the arguments go. All the stuff that we argue about lands at that court, and I like the arguments. I like thinking really hard and hearing these amazing stories. That teach me something about the country. You know, you, you could have picked any topic to do a radio app spinoff. Was this something that you always wanted to get to, or did you have twenty different topics and you land on the Supreme Court? No, this was this was. Uh, I'll tell you how it happened. Do you want the long? Please, do you want yeah. the long story? Or do you want the short story? Or? You're, you're the professional podcaster. You okay, I'll see if I can split the difference. Basically, 2013, I think. Um, I uh, I was making Radio Lab with the team. And uh, I was just getting kind of restless. We, I felt like we were doing the same stories a lot. I mean, each story was different, obviously, but we were, we were in the same neighborhood of, like, science meets philosophy, wonder thing, that whole thing. And I, I was wanting to, for us to branch out. And so I asked the team of producers, like, hey, here's a, here's a crazy idea. Go look at the Supreme Court docket and pick a case, make up one phone call, and then report back. Let's see what we get. And one of the producers on staff at that time, Tim Howard, who has since gone off and is working on an awesome podcast called Reply All, he went off and found this case called Adoptive Couple v. Baby Girl, which was like on the surface, this kind of mundane, well, that's not the right word, sort of ordinary custody battle where it's like you had a couple fighting with a biological dad over a two-year-old girl. And it's the kind of thing that maybe you would see on Judge Judy or something. Uh But this particular custody battle somehow got to these, like, massive existential questions about Native American sovereignty and the history of, like, kids being abducted off of Native American reservations. And it was just, like, one of these, like, 
like it's it was everything you want as a storyteller, right? Like you want this tiny little thing, like these people who are just like super small and human sized, but they contain the world, you know. And it was like it was like the universe in a blade of grass in a way. And you said that's a show, and I was like, holy moly, like that's a that's a great story. And had you had you done that exercise with other topics? Had you said, go find me a battle and tell me a story about? No, a, this was the first time that I that I sort of prescribed something. Usually, yeah. usually it's like, what do you got? And then people bring whatever it is they're interested in. This was the first time where I was like, go there and look at that. And then when it when it worked, I thought, oh my god, let's do that again. And so we did like three or four more at Radio Lab. Uh, just over the course of a few years. And then finally I was like, let's just make this its own thing because there's so many of these qu- these cases. Like if you just kind of peel away the legality stuff, you get down to the personal layers and then you get down to the cultural layers and the political layers and the historical layers. They're just so rich. They're so interesting. And so every story, well, not everyone, kind of leads you in that to that thing. So I was like, this needs to be its own spinoff. So that was season one? And season two is... Season two is minutes away. And anything radically different, or are you more of the same? We liked the last time, we're going to do more of these. A little bit more of the same, but but this season is, I just think, like, okay, let me just, for context, last season we did six episodes, I believe. Uh-huh. It was just like, it was really just a proof of concept. Like, yeah. can we do this? Yeah. Will people want to listen to it? Yeah. We didn't know, you know, and uh, it worked out well enough. We were like, okay, let's do it again. And, and this time it's just like for real. Like, this is like... For real, for real. Like, it's a bigger season, bigger stories, way more contemporary. Uh, like, I feel like the world that is, the crazy world that is America right now is very much present in every single story. Like, uh, it, like the That's, travel ban, you know, police brutality, all the right. big so issues. Does that, so you, you, you feel that consciously, that the sort of, the yeah. era we're in now heightens the importance of talking about the Supreme Court and and the law and how that works in, in America. Yeah, I do feel that urgency. I mean, it, we're not we're not doing like news stories. Yeah, you know, so like there it isn't that classic like news peg kind of kind of thing. But uh, I do feel like every story I tell has to somehow like teach me something about this moment. I felt that I was listening to uh, one of last season shows this week, and there's a line there or a riff there about how Supreme Court can prescribe law. But it only works if it's actually upheld by a whole line of various people. And eventually what actually enforces the Supreme Court ruling is boots on the ground. Yeah. And I thought, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to be thinking about that in the next few years. Oh, for real. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, the Supreme Court doesn't have an army. They don't have a police force. Uh, I, I believe they have marshals, but they don't really do much. So, yeah, it's like— uh, You got to ask Louise Mensch about that. Yeah. I mean, it's like I think what—was it, uh, you know, Andrew Jackson famously said, like, you know— he, I forget what it was he said. I don't know if he actually said it, and I can't even remember the quote, but he basically told the, the Supreme Court to, like, go to hell. He was like, okay, you can, you can make whatever rulings you want to, you know? So, uh, yeah, the, the power of the court is always an interesting topic, especially in these times. There's a, the last line of the last episode of the last season is, I wrote it down, I think we're fucked, but maybe not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Have you, have, you re- have you revisited that one since? <laughs> you know, it's funny. That was a, that, that was, was last a, summer. That was the last line of a story that Sean Rom's firm did about uh, 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 basically discrimination, racial discrimination, and jury selection. Yeah, it's a funny. You know, it was a funny. Uh, there was a funny thing. Like we were, we kept debating whether to keep that in or not. But I was just like, man, that's the best. That's the, like the best moment of that story. It's like so real. 
we had to keep it in. But I mean, do I still think we're fucked? Does he still think we're fucked? Here's what I'll say. Let me give you the politic answer. You know, like, personally, I wake up sometimes and I read the, the newspaper and I think, yeah, we're fucked. But the benefit of doing this kind of reporting, doing really any deep dive into any Supreme Court case, is that it every case in a kind of hypertexty way takes, takes you back in time. And you realize that, like, we were fucked always <laughs> in some way. It's like, been fraught for a long it's, time. Yeah, like you go back to the 70s and we were a lot more fucked uh, than we are now, I think I would argue. Things have always been crazy. I mean, it's really easy to see this moment as being singularly crazy, singularly bad. I don't think it is. I think actually there, there have been other moments. I mean, you look at the discourse that was present at the very founding of our country. I mean, you had Thomas Jefferson calling John Adams his rotundity. Like, they would call each other fat. That was their discourse, right, at the very beginning. Yeah. So when you hear Trump saying things like that, I'm like, it doesn't – when you know that, it doesn't sound so crazy or so different. So I got to go to a Supreme Court hearing once. It's one of the coolest things I've done. And I knew this going in, but until you're there, you can't really figure out what that means. You can't bring electronics in there. Right. Um, you're taking notes on, on paper. And then there's no cameras in there. Mm-hmm. Right, And no one's broadcasting this live. There's sound recordings, but no one's ever really going to listen to them. Does the fact that this is sort of happening, it's in public, but and obviously the deliberations are private. It's, the fact that so much of this is sort of happening offstage yeah. give you guys a lot more freedom? Yeah, I mean, there's a way in which um, – I think that's partially so. I mean, there is there is the uh, the OEA recorded archives, yeah. which yeah. You, you can hear all – the oral arguments. Yeah, from, I was listening to Thurgood Marshall. I'm like, oh, that's what he sounds like. Yeah, I know, I know. It's like you can hear things all. I think 1956 or seven is the cutoff. Uh, so you miss a lot of those early ones. But to a certain degree, I mean, I, I do think it's not so much that it isn't recorded, but that a lot of times it's these. It's not in view. It's not in view, and it's not somehow intellectually in view. Like a lot of times when these when these lawyers get in front of the court. They're having super technical arguments about things like standing or, um, you know, jurisdictional things that, you know, for you and I don't maybe quite care about. But those arguments are like the tip of an iceberg and 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 they're always resting on top of a much bigger argument that is like shot through the history of this country. And so you have like liberty there. Like you can you can you can move from the actual argument they're having to the argument that you want to have, you know. That, that their argument rests upon. And so a lot of the times we go into the court and then you're hearing the lawyer, and then he said, and then he said, and then suddenly the music kicks in and you're like, to really understand what they're talking about, let's go back in time. And then you said, the music kind yep. of takes you. So you have that kind of liberty. Yeah, you know? it's, it's great. I'll endorse it a few more times, but you guys should go listen to this. It's great. It comes from Radiolab. It comes from Chad. You'll love it. We're going to take a super quick break. We're going to hear a word from our sponsor, TransferWise. We'll be right back with Chad. Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever need to send money internationally? Maybe you're an engineer, moved to the U.S. Maybe you're a business owner trying to pay suppliers in another country. You're a freelancer getting paid by someone in a foreign country. You should use TransferWise. When it comes to sending money, banks are stuck in the past. TransferWise is the future. Go to the future. It's better there. You pay into a local account and TransferWise pays your recipient from an account in their country currencies don't need to cross borders. And that should matter to you because let's TransferWise do things your bank can't. They charge one low fee, they give you a great low rate. And unlike your bank, TransferWise payments take seconds to set up. See how much you could save by going to TransferWise.com. You could download the app from Apple Store or Google Play. Once again, that's TransferWise.com. 
transfer, like I got to transfer money from one country to another country. And wise, like I'm a wise person who listens to Recode Media. It's transferwise, W-I-S-E dot com. We're back here with Jad. He's talking about Radiolab, More Perfect, your entire life's history. I was looking at some clips, and I was expecting to find you because you're an old radio guy, lineage in, ra- in radio. And I was expecting to see something from you saying something along the lines of, there's no difference between podcasting and what I was doing in radio, and they're literally the same product. Yeah. And you said something radically different. You said, thank God for podcasting. What I do would not work on radio. And I, I was surprised to read that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's I think it's kind of true. I mean, we are both always, you know. Right. You started radio. This is a radio Start, program. Yeah, I mean, it has, has radio in the name. Uh, yeah, so I started I started firmly in radio, and then podcasting came along, and I was like, thank God, because um, I would I would regularly have the experience. I mean, my first love is radio, but I would regularly have the experience where I'd listen to something I made on the radio, and I would realize, oh Jesus God, like why are you putting in so many sounds, Jad? Like just like there's too many layers, there's too many things happening. So you're talking about specifically about the kind of show you make where it's it's so dense it's with so audio. It's so dense and it's so like embroidered or it was more so back in the day than it is now and uh something about that wouldn't work on the radio because it's none of it's on demand it's all just sort of happening and if you turn away for a second you miss something and you know the show would move at a certain pace that was frankly hard to listen to on the radio and so when podcasting came along suddenly radio lab just made a hell of a lot more sense like it was on this device and you could put it deep into your ear canals and it was just you and the person listening and the sounds and the textures and all the stuff that we were sweating about suddenly made a lot more sense. People could have a much more intimate connection to it. And if they missed something, they could hit stop, they could right. go back. And it's just some of the technology opened up a new way of listening that made way more sense That's for That's really interesting. Rep. I always think of the difference in podcasting being it's on demand and you just get to it when you want. And, and the form is the same. Yeah. And I used to love This American Life back when I was listening to it on a crappy radio in, in Minneapolis. And I love it now on a on an iPhone. It's it's the same thing. And the, the important part is the distribution and when you can get to it. But you're saying literally the experience of listening to it is, is qualitatively different. I think so. I think it's way different. A lot way different. I mean, you know, like I think that uh, when you're listening to a podcast, I mean, it really is like a it's just you and that person. Right. I mean, it's, the intimacy is something we always talk about in radio. And I think that is true. But so often the, the actual experience of listening to the radio is that you're here. The radio is about eight feet away. And there's like kids running in between you Dishes. and the radio. You know, you're you're sort of in and you're out. You're kind of it's sort of a companion. And then you're listening to it directly. And then you sort of lose sight of it and radio lab doesn't work very well in that environment yeah there's a whole thing in my house where we'll have the sometimes we'll have the radio on but then often if i want to listen to a podcast i put the headphones in and you realize well you can't really do that when there's people in your family around right, you who right. have an expectation that if you're in the same room you could talk to them totally totally um so you you go you you listen to this by yourself you find a quiet room or a loud subway car and, and listen <laughs> yeah exactly exactly that's great so i think of the stuff that you do as being broadly similar to a lot of stuff that comes out of public radio and wnyc um and then specifically a little different right we talked about the density of sound and that yeah. layering you do i want to talk about the part that's similar so this American Life, what you do, um, you mentioned your producer went off to Reply All yeah. over at Gimlet. They all have a sort of similar aesthetic where they're, they're produced pieces created by, I'm assuming, people who are on the liberal progressive end of the spectrum with the assumption that's who's listening to them. 
they all sort of break the fourth wall in various places. Yeah. Where where did that aesthetic sort of can you point to where that came from? Because I, I don't see it. I don't see that particular aesthetic as dominant. Like I like when I watch a, a documentary, I don't often see the docu- the director pull aside and go, "Here's what we're trying to do," or there's some crosstalk about yeah. a scene they were yeah. trying to get. God, I, that's a good question. I mean, I think that uh, if I maybe let me let me my, I'll start moving my mouth. And yeah, my, go my for brain it. will catch up. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I do think that all 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 of the public radio refugee podcasts do do have similar DNA. And that, like, we're all trying to tell those sort of, like, really super narrative, surprising, character-driven stories where, like, there's some transformation moment. We're all interested in music. I feel like we're all sort of, like, the offspring of This American Life in some fundamental way. But, I, you know, it's funny. It's like you can even pull it back even farther. I mean, I think he was the offspring of Gene Shepard and those kinds of guys who were, who were, who were doing sort of narrative storytelling, personal storytelling. When I, when I say he, I mean Ira. Yep. You know, that's Ira Glass. The yeah, rest of exactly. Us. So, so you know, the, I would say there's a kind of a lineage that goes back even farther than Ira Glass uh, that that we're all drawing from. And uh, you know, I mean, maybe we're all politically of a like mind. I, I that's probably more true than I would like it to be. Yeah. And uh, I think authenticity and transparency are just like baked into this kind of podcasting. And so that fourth wall thing is about reminding yourself and reminding the people you're talking to like we all know what's happening here like, I love you know. it and I can't but and, I can't imagine that it would work as well on other form and I do like you know like, like a David Foster Wallace thing with multiple yeah. footnotes and he's talking to the reader at the same time but a little of that goes a long way but you guys do it week after week and it doesn't seem just like shtick yeah it's funny it's like one of the one of the most cliched ways in which we open the show it, it happens I would say 20% of the time is like you hear the sound of people just like sitting down and getting yeah. getting them, we are putting know, on a show getting, okay here let's put, get the mic ready and you, you do all the artifacts right and again it's just a way of saying that like the, the, just reminding yourself and your people that like the, this is all artificial and like in some on some fundamental way the only way to be real is to be clear about the artifice you know it's like we all know what we're doing is fake so let's get past that and get to somewhere real so it's a little bit that I'd say. And then one of the things that distinguishes you is this dense sort of, well, it sounds not the right term, but I'm going to use it as a shorthand. Maybe we're the Phil Spector of podcasts. Don't don't shoot me, please. (laughs) Um, uh, Where did that come from? Did you say from the get-go, I want to make this intensely dense, rich thing with a bunch of different sound going in? Or did did you come to that? I don't know. That That part of it for me was like, was there, you know, from the beginning. I mean, I... I don't know. It's a good question. I I, uh, I listen to a lot of music and a lot. I mean, like I went to music school, and I remember um, getting super, super like into into like really big, thunderous, cacophonous music, and I loved that sense of like just like the saturating the ent- the entire like oral space. Um, I just, I don't know. Somehow that just appealed to me, and uh, you know we we also studied like. Bach, sorry, this is going to sound highfalutin, but this is actually literally what I was doing in music school. I was studying Bach counterpoint. And like... I'm nodding. I've heard of Bach. Yeah. <laughs> well, so when you study the music theory of it, what the, the whole thing is that you have four voices and there are some very rigorous rules as to how the voices can move in relation to each other. So when one voice goes up, the baritone has to go down. When the alto goes here, the tailing goes here. And there's just like, it's like math, basically. 
And so I loved that. I found that really appealing. Like, oh, it was like a little, it's like, I think why some people like crossword puzzles. I loved trying to write these little Bach uh-huh. chorales or like faux Bach chorales. And for me, when I got to radio, I really liked the editing process for the same reason. Like you had eight voices and they were telling one story. And so you had to find a way to have eight concurrent lines weaving in and out of each other to create fluid speech. It felt to me a little bit like what I was doing in music school. So there's just something deeply pleasing to me about that. Doesn't everyone pull you aside and say, it's great that you like this and it's great that this is your equivalent of a crossword puzzle. Well, it's a lot of work. Oh, sure, yeah. And, you know. Doing what we're doing takes a little bit of work. I had to take a subway up here to talk to you. Um, but to do a reported piece, right, that's a lot of work. To just to do standard reporting, then you add audio on top of it so, and to edit it. Mm-hmm. And then to, on top of that, to add all this additional audio production that you like to do and is the it's, it's kind of the signature of the show. But you could do it without, right? And, well, and, and it would be easier. Yeah, it would be easier, sure. I mean, but it's... But it's not uh, you. It's uh, yeah. I mean, there's some way in which my vo- I, f- I feel like that's my voice now yeah. on some level. So it's almost not even a choice anymore. It's just how I speak. I speak with an ear for how it's going to be edited and composed later. But you know, to to your point, as I've grown older and I've gotten a little less um, excited about staying up till three a.m., you know, we do do less now. We do a lot less, and now the the, the emphasis is more on the stories and the journalism and finding new takes uh, and putting a lot of the effort into the actual reporting and, and, and hoping that the production can keep pace. When, you, when you're asking your listeners for money at the top of the show or some of the shows, you say, some, look, this can cost $100,000 per episode to put this together. It can take more than a year mm-hmm. to report and edit mm-hmm. this stuff. Has sort of the degree of difficulty in the reporting increased over time as you've gotten more ambitious? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is not unusual for stories to go over a year and uh, to involve, like, I mean, you know, a lot of times, this is going to, this, it seems weird to say this, but, like, a lot of times you're doing 10 interviews before you actually figure out what the story is. And so there's, like, this headless chicken phase you're going through just to right. even get to the starting line. And then a lot of times, you know, you're having to, not just do one interview, like if I'm interviewing you for a story, I need to interview four other people to make sure I can, in a sense, understand where you land in the context. It just it gives me hives thinking about it. Because it gives do, me hives, too. Because doing the version of reporting I do where I call someone up and talk to them, and I might go through that same sort of expending energy, and I think the story is this way, but actually it turns out this, and I've got to fact check that, and I've got to rip the whole thing up. That's a ton of work. But I don't have to worry about recording it and making sure I got the sound and, mm-hmm. and, and making sure it's done in the right time and stitching it all together. Boy, you sound like you've got a tough job. Well, You seem remarkably calm. They, well, yeah. I mean, it, no, it, it definitely gives me hives too. But like, I, I share the hives now with a big team. And, mm-hmm. and so we all kind of like carry each other. Uh, but yeah, like if it – and I recognize that's a, that's a rare thing in our business. You know, it's like uh, – it's rare to have like uh, to be able to have a, to a larger team that works on these stories for over a year, but uh, that that is increasingly what it takes to do the kind of thing that we're doing. You've got a big audience. Do you think that if you made stuff that was simpler, if it was less produced, that you'd have a bigger audience? Do you ever think about trying to reach beyond sort of the the blue state archipelago that you and I are in? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the th- thoughts that I've had been having a lot with More Perfect particularly is I, I want to increasingly follow these stories into the world a little bit more. I mean, we sort of we put it mean? out there. 
Well, we 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 are we're essentially kind of broadcasting, but it's podcasting is a different. I hate yeah. the word podcasting, but like we're essentially just sort of throwing it out into the ether and hoping it lands, right? Uh, but you know, as an example, in this next season of More Perfect, we're doing a big, long, historical, quadruple layer cake on the Second Amendment, and you're hearing voices from all across the political spectrum on that. For me, it's important to do that story not just because it's a great story, which it is, but it's to it, to start a conversation. And I'm increasingly I'm interested in hearing that conversation after we do the story. And so we're doing a lot, like with More Perfect, we're doing a lot of live events now, uh, live debates, because I think it's important to stand in a room and hear people actually argue and take these ideas and pull them in and pull them apart. So you'll have two people debating on stage. Do you think the audience is split or do you think the audience is kind of all the way over on one side to begin with and probably is going to stay there. The audience is, I mean, like the thing that's interesting about even something like the Second Amendment is like if you take the blue staters and you're like, where are you on the Second Amendment? They're all going to go to one side. But there's a way in which you can you can tell the story of the Second Amendment, which complicates things even for them. Uh, so, you know, you can take any issue and if you really think about it and force people to identify with the other side, you can move a room from one room to one one side to the other and We've done live events at, at More Perfect on, you know, uh, censorship on social media or like eminent domain, where people start one way and you and you yeah. see them migrate because there there are good arguments on both sides. I remember going to a live taping of uh, This American Life. It was right after the 2004 election, and it's hard to remember now, but there was a sense of shock then. Yeah, that Bush had won, and it seemed catastrophic. And I remember. It was, it was, I guess, in town hall, somewhere in New York, and Ira was addressing all of us. It was kind of therapy, and he was saying, look, I, I know, I know this is shocking, but Kerry was also a terrible candidate, and we're going to get through this. And it very much felt like therapy, but also we were a tribe, right? And yeah. I thought, this is great, but it also kind of, to me, if I thought about it afterwards, kind of explains part of the problem here, right? We all know the way we think and view, or we think we view these ideas, and probably we should be more exposed to people from Michigan who thought that gay marriage was a terrible thing. Totally. Yeah. No, I think that's that's exactly right. Uh, was I, I they, they might be giants. Do you remember that they were they played live? Was that two thousand? I think you know. I think I went to a. Oh a, no, 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 no! I'm sorry. I've conflated those two. But I, I definitely remember the post carry one. I uh, yeah. I went to one in two thousand, which was the Bush v. Gore. Yeah. Yeah. And I so I think I was four years ahead of you. Okay. Same scenario. It was like Ira was on stage at his desk, and the entire tribe of 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 New Yorkers, liberal New Yorkers, were just in a, a state of despair. And he was, like, talking. Yeah, so yeah. same thing four years later. Yeah. <sighs> Speaking of politics, you guys did an episode about uh, 4chan and Shia LaBeouf mm-hmm. and a, uh art installation yeah. project he'd done. And then you took it down. Yeah. W- why did you take it down? This is the last – this is a few months ago, right? Or a few months ago, ago, yeah. We took it down just because we got, we got some pushback from folks that – the you know, it's like I'm all for – getting i mean it's like there's you know we've done a lot of episodes where where people have criticized us and it's been fine but there was a way in which um at that moment seeing what was happening in charlottesville because we we, it was just it was crazy bad timing too we put out an episode that basically said that uh basically took a slightly moral relativistic view of uh four channers trolling shia labeouf um, and then suddenly to see uh, what was happening in Charlottesville unfold right as the episode was going out and to see the grief 
We just didn't want to add to that. Right. So Shia LaBeouf had made an anti-Trump performance art project, 4chan, which nominally is, well, not nominally, it started off certainly as apolitical, but has become sort of Trumpian or there's a loud Trumpian voice that's arisen there in the last year. So do you think it's just the sort of because of Charlottesville, because you released it that month, that if you released it a month earlier or I a month if, from now, know, it would have been okay? I think if we'd released it a month earlier, we would have gotten some criticism of being insensitive and how could you how could you feature these people in the way you did? And I would have been fine with that criticism, but there was a way in which I just didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to get even near what was happening in Charlottesville. And it felt like if we were adding to that in any way, that felt wrong to me. Is that the only time you've, you've had to pull an episode down? I believe so. Because I would figure you would get grief from time to time, but I would also think, boy, you spend a lot of time on any one of these things. We're talking about more than a year. Yeah. That it wouldn't be like something you'd sort of casually slap together and then had to regret after the moment. Yeah. That, no, we've, that one, honestly, that one we didn't spend a lot of time on. Okay. You know, that was one of the ones we didn't. So, yeah, you know, honestly, I don't know if it was the right decision or not. You know, I mean, it's the decision we felt like we had to make at that moment. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I, it wasn't my happiest moment, I'll be honest, you know. Well, let's do something that's happier. Mm-hmm. Um, like I mentioned before, you're you're a MacArthur Genius recipient. Genius. <laughs> you're gonna give me whiplash. Yeah. Going from that to that. Up, down, back, forth. So th- I think most people who are listening to this know what a MacArthur Genius grant is, or, or a vague idea of it is. But basically, they give you a pile of money. Mm-hmm. And they say, do whatever you want with it for five years. We love the work you're doing, and they don't tell you in advance you're in the running for this, right? No. So no, it was a total out of the blue thing. What what happens on the day you find out you get a MacArthur Genius grant? I got a call from a – I was in the airport. I had just lost my wallet. My luggage hadn't come through. Uh, and I get a call from a guy. I forget his name. First, he sent me an email with no subject line that said, please call me. And I remember thinking, oh, this is some, like, Nigerian scam mm-hmm. thing. And then uh, I, I did end up talking to him while trying to find my luggage. And he basically – it was the shortest phone call I've ever – you know, I mean, he said, uh, Congratulations you'll never hear from me again. And he just, that was true. <laughs> and then suddenly he, he confirmed the address, confirmed a few things about how, I, about my title. And then basically I was off the phone in, in I don't know, two minutes. And uh, it was just, it was really weird. It was like, it was like being somehow like visited by, by the, like some weird Masonic. What is your first thing. reaction? Is it, is it, this isn't, I'm being pranked? Or? I had that reaction a little bit. Um, I don't know. Because, again, like there's no – it's not like you have a buddy and you're up for tenure and they're telling you, it's like, this is probably going to happen. But I officially can't tell you that. This is out of the blue, right? Out of the blue. And they tell you like months before it's announced. Uh-huh. And so, uh, you know, for weeks after that, I was like, I, was that, did that actually happen? You know, like I, it didn't feel do, real do, do to me. Do you try to fact check it? Do, do, does this guy exist? Is this the real one? Do you call the MacArthur Foundation? I didn't. Call, I didn't fact check it. But then yeah. a, a letter arrived, yeah. like a couple of days later, and then I was like, okay, I think this is actually a real thing. And again, it's a big sum. It's like six hundred thousand dollars, and there's no restrictions on it. Yeah, I think it was five hundred at the time I got okay. it. No restrictions. It's a lot of money. A lot of money. They, they say this is a in recognition of the work you're doing. Go yeah, do more of it. Go do more of it, and they don't tell you. They don't. They don't tell you anything else. So it was just. It was. It was trippy. I have to be honest. Um, I mean, it's amazing. It's like this incredible gift. But I, it threw me for a while. Do, do you reach out to other MacArthur Foundation recipients and say, "What do you do?" You know, I well, I did the math, and then, uh, and it turns out, you, so you get a certain amount per year, which uh-huh. is heavily taxed. 
which is still amazing, but then the money seems a whole lot less at that point. Sure. And so I kind of figured out that mathematically what made sense for me was to put most of it toward my kids' education and then to take the a big chunk of it and build like a semi-soundproof room in my house so that I can record the show from there on occasion and be be near the kids. And is it is it akin to winning the lottery, which I, I guess what winning the lottery is like, where people come out of the woodwork and congratulations, and by the way, I've got something you might be interested in investing in or supporting or you owe me for pizza? No, not that happened here and there, but no, not really, because I could say to them what I just said to you, which is like, actually, it's not like that much it's money. A, it's a very New York You know, I mean, answer. it's it's, a, it's awesome, but it's like when you really do the math, it's not like, it's not life-changing money at any given time. So beyond jackasses like me asking about the money, <laughs> you're the same guy. Yeah, pretty much. You took a four-month break last year? It did, yeah. Is it just, I'm, I've been doing this for a long time, it's a lot of work. Was there a consideration that maybe you wouldn't come back or you were always going to come back? I think I was always going to come back. I knew I couldn't come back doing it the way I was doing it. You know, I mean, I I took a break. So I had been working on Radio Lab for 13 years at that point, 14 years. And I had just launched More Perfect. And uh, doing them both together was maybe not the healthiest thing in the world. And uh I basically, I just, I just kind of hit a wall after that, and I was like, I need to just take a beat to think about what's next and to think about how I engage this thing. And uh, so I came back super committed to both projects, but knowing that I have to just work in a slightly different way with the team and be less involved in some areas, more involved in others. That seems and like a pretty hard thing to pull off for someone in your mid-40s, right? Yeah, mid-40s. You don't you know, usually make big changes in the way you live at that point in your life. Are you being sarcastic? No, I mean, I mean, I don't know. People have a heart attack, and they no, say, "Oh, I was I've just thinking eat, like I've you know, like I was just quickly. thinking like midlife crisis." The dude, gets, yeah, but that's you buy a car, right? right or right, you have yeah. an affair. You don't, you don't actually change the way you're your person. And if you're the kind of person who thought it made sense to run two podcasts simultaneously, you're probably that same person. Yeah, but no, I am, I am. But it's like it's also like I grew up working in a certain way where I was. I mean, I started Radiolab, and it was just me in a dark damp room for years and you grow up working in a certain way at that point you do everything you like top to bottom and then the show grows and more people get added and you can't keep working in that same way and you know I've always been like a, a kind of a control freak and uh, I just need to learn how to be slightly a different relationship to the work how's it going it's going good <laughs> it's going better it's a process you know, it's like, especially on the radio lab side, I'm working with people who've been doing it for a long time. And I just recognize that I need to make space for them as much as they need to make space for me. And so, you know, I'm a little bit more of a boss now than I ever thought I'd be. A little bit less of a doer than I than I used to be. When I ever in, uh, engage in bosshood, I find it more stressful than Oh, I hate the, it. I fucking hate it. But it's, it's, it's a necessary evil, I think. All right. Well, you seem to be holding up pretty well. Again, you're a guy who's launching a new podcast eminently, and you've been very generous with your time here. I will let you get back to it. Cool. Well, this has been a real pleasure. Thanks, Jed. Thanks for your time. Thanks to WNYC for letting us record here. Again, you want to go listen to Radio Lab whenever you can find it. More perfect launching early October, days October from 2nd, now. Yeah. And you know how to find this podcast because you're listening to this podcast right now. Again, all we ask of you is that you tell someone else about it. It's free. We're going to keep it that way. 
Thanks to our sponsor, who also helps us keep this free, TransferWise. Cadence 13 sells ads to people like TransferWise. They're great. So are my producers, Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson, and my editor, Chris Basil. Thank you, guys. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week. Hi, this is Dan Fromer, Editor-in-Chief at Recode. I'm here to tell you about a new project we just launched, the Recode 100, and ask for your help. We're trying to make a list of the people in the tech and business worlds who made the biggest impact this year, the winners of 2017. Executives, entrepreneurs, movement starters, designers, whoever, primarily in tech media and commerce, but also some of our new focus areas like transportation, policy, and robotics. We'll unveil the full list and throw a big party for the winners later this year, but for now, we need your nominations. So if you know someone who kicked ass this year or is a rising star in their field, head to recode.net slash submit by Monday, October 16th to nominate someone and for more information. That's recode.net slash submit.